0: Contrary to what you might believe, uh, America isn't the only country that fights over really silly things. And, I mean, look, if we're being honest, if you thought that, you just really never paid attention in history class. This week, we are finishing up our Wacky war series with some uh, really stupid uh, international wars. It's Our Weird World. Our Weird World. Welcome to Our Weird World, I'm your host, John Henson, and uh, yeah, like I said last week, we talked about really dumb uh, American conflicts that were considered wars. Um, These are, uh, the international ones here that we're going to talk about this week, are actually legitimately more... War-like. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, um, we're going to look at uh, a few different ones here. We're going to look at the 335 Years War, the Kettle War, the Flagstaff War, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, the War of the Golden Stool, and the Emu War. It's going to be a big episode, so let's jump into it. During the Middle Ages, the English, the British, whatever you want to call them, were just constantly at war with what seemed like almost everyone. Uh, In the 1640s, not only were the English wrapping up the 80 Years' War with the Spanish, but they were also busy with their own civil war. And for nine years, royalists fought against parliamentarians over how the English government should be run. Oliver Cromwell, the leader of the parliamentarians, you've probably heard of him, uh, he eventually forced the royalists to to the Cornwall region, which is the tiny southwestern tip of the British island, And by 1648, Cromwell had conquered the British mainland and forced the Royalist Navy to retreat to the nearby Isles of Skilly. Meanwhile, the United Provinces of the Netherlands were working on their alliance with the English after the two had teamed up during the Eighty Years' War. And the Dutch knew that they had to help the English win their own civil war as a show of gratitude for, you know, having the English help them, uh, you know, with the Eighty Years' War. And they decided to bandwagon on the side that looked like they were winning, which in this case was the Parliamentarians'. Um, but despite the Dutch Navy's efforts to help dispose of the Royalists at, in the Isles of Skilly, uh, the Dutch ended up suffering heavy losses. Um, on March 30th, 1651, Admiral Martin Harperton Trump, believe it or not, uh, probably you know down the line related to you know Donald Trump and, and all that. But Admiral Trump arrived on the Isles of Skilly and demanded reparations from the Royalist fleet for the damage the Dutch had suffered, as well as the goods that had been stolen from them by the Royalists because... Because they were the best goods, I promise you. Like, nobody has goods like Dutch goods. Trust me. Yeah. See what I did there? I didn't do the impression because it probably would have been really bad. But anyway, um, <clears throat> when, the, when the royalists refused, Trump declared war on the island and then docked his fleet, uh, you know, in the harbor, you know, just off the mainland. A little over two months later, parliamentarian forces led by Robert Blake finally forced the royalist fleet to surrender as the Dutch Navy watched and waited for their reparations. However... Since the English Civil War was practically over at that point, the Dutch just kind of packed up and left because they, you know, the Royalists had been defeated. They weren't going to get the reparations, so you know there was there was nothing there. Um, the The Dutch never fired a shot. They basically just declared war and then just stepped back and watched the the Parliamentarians finish off the Royal forces. Um, that's going to be very important, so keep that in mind. Um, the next war here that we're going to talk about is the Kettle War. Uh, And despite what your history books would have you believe, life in Europe did continue in the period between the discovery of the new world and world war one. It kind of just gets forgotten. Uh, At least when I was growing up, it was like world history, uh, you know, was like all about Europe, like nothing but European history up until Christopher Columbus. And then from there, like that's kind of as far as we ever got in world history. And then after that, if we ever learned about anything, between, like, 1492 and World War One, it was all, like, church history. So, like, you know, Martin Luther and then the Popes and then this is what these missionaries did. And, you know, like, John Calvin and all this kind of stuff. Like, basically my point here, you guys, is I didn't really have a good uh, understanding of world history growing up. And this is probably making up for that. Um, but uh, where are we at? 1781. Uh, Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II uh, made a demand that the barrier system be dismantled, and this barrier system was originally created after the War of Spanish Succession, and it consisted of several fortresses designed to guard the border of the Spanish Netherlands from France. Three years later, Joseph demanded several Spanish-held Dutch territories be returned to the Netherlands. Uh, You know, he's just trying to clean everything up here, um, you know, after the War of Spanish Succession. And to make sure that everyone knew he was serious, he threatened war, even though the Belgian army that he had at his disposal as the Holy Roman Emperor was not remotely close to being ready to go fight. But on October 9th, 1784, Joseph II sent three ships from Antwerp uh, to the Scheldt River, uh, which had been closed for trade after the Dutch Revolt of the 1500s. There's just so much war and conflict going on. In response, the Dutch sent one ship out as an interceptor, and when the two sides met, the Dutch ship, the Dolfijn, uh, fired a single shot that hit a kettle uh, on the Belgian ship. And this scared the Emperor's Belgian forces so much that they immediately surrendered and turned back. Uh, and three weeks later, the Holy Roman emperor officially declared war. Um, though the Dutch count of Psalm responded to the declaration of war by organizing the exercise and militia, whatever that is. I don't even know. That's just a crazy word. Um, and outfitted their ships with new cannons. No other shots were fired during the course of the war. And so as this came to be known uh, as the Kettle War, since just one kettle was shot (laughs) by the Dutch, uh, this Kettle War actually led to the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which didn't really do anything but maintain the status quo uh, of everything that had been going on. Um, And meanwhile, while all of this is still going on, uh, the 335 Years' War, which was the first conflict we talked about um, with... Uh, admiral trump and the isles of skilly and the english civil war that's still technically going on all right so keep that in mind uh next we have the flagstaff war um and this happened in new zealand which you know even though that had been claimed for britain by captain james cook uh the british didn't actually pay much attention to the islands until the early 19th century when different maori tribes started buying muskets from the australians and just blowing each other's faces off like maori pretty violent people um but super cool dance You know, so there we go. Uh, That was probably that probably offended somebody. Uh, In 1831, over a dozen tribal leaders wrote a letter to King William IV asking for help in stopping the violence among the different Maori tribes. And in response, the British sent James Busby to be the official British representative. Busby quickly came in and got to work and drafted the Declaration of Independence of New Zealand, which is not at all what Britain wanted to have happen. And so by 1836, the British Navy started patrolling New Zealand and sought to establish sovereignty over the island, thanks in large part to the fact that the Maori were in constant state of inebriation. Like, they were drunk all the time. There was no real government. There was no structure. And god dang, man, like, if there's one thing us white people like, we like some good old-fashioned structure and organization and rules. So, um... (laughs) Anyway, uh, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, which then gave the British the sovereignty they were looking for. Uh, The Maori, on the other hand, thought that the treaty simply established British protection from the French while still granting them authority to manage their own government. But in true white people fashion, we kind of snaked our way in and tricked everybody. Um, shortly after the treaty was signed, the British began setting up shop all over New Zealand Uh, in the town of Korareika, a town full of brothels, bars, gambling dens, and just generally the kind of people that tend to frequent those places. uh, The British hoisted their flag signifying their ownership of the area. Honehiki, a highly influential Maori chief, promptly walked up to the flagpole and chopped it down. Uh, When the British erected a second flag, Hiki came back and chopped it down again. And because the flag is terribly important to the British, they erected a third pole, this time wrapped in iron and surrounded with guard posts. But the next morning, the British arrived to find that this flagpole had been torn down as well. Uh, Getting like at this point, they're getting really frustrated with the fact that they couldn't keep their flags erected, and so the British sent messengers and missionaries to the Maori to tell them to just chill out. Uh, the Maori, of course, were not impressed, and a force of 600 warriors, armed with muskets, double barreled shotguns, and tomahawks, attacked the British at Cororica. Cororarika. Cororarika. Maybe Cororarika. That's what it is. Other languages hard um the Maori at at Kororayika whatever it is uh they proceeded to plunder and burn all of the British buildings and then chop down the British flagpole for a fourth time like I just love like this really good passive-aggressive stuff uh the war between the British and the Maori continued for another 10 months at which point the British finally were able to even things out um however they stopped planning flagpoles which was probably all the Maori wanted in the first place so that uh, concluded the Flagstaff War. Um, however, meanwhile, uh, while this was going on, the 335 years war uh, is still going on. Uh, so the next one here is the Anglo-Zanzibar War. Um, during the late 1800s, European powers spent most of their free time just kind of claiming different parts of Africa. Because, I mean, look—if we're going to be honest, Africans don't matter. We've 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 kind of established that. I think I'm kidding, of course. Don't get super. Butt over that statement, but you know if history has proven one thing, it's that a lot of the European countries did not care about Africa whatsoever. Um, near modern day Tanzania, the island of Zanzibar had been established as it, as its own sovereign entity by the sultans of Oman, which was recognized as as its own British entity or its own legitimate entity by the British. But as things tend to do over in Africa, with you know small or very loosely uh, organized governments, things started to fall apart really quickly. On August 25th, 1896, Sultan Hamad, the leader of Zanzibar, died suddenly and unexpectedly and kind of mysteriously. Uh, immediately, his nephew, Khalid bin Bargash, was suspected of assassinating Hamad, especially when he quickly and unremorsefully removed uh, moved into the palace to assume the throne. Like, his uncle dies, and then he's like, oh, man, Uncle Hamad is dead. Grab my things. we going in. Yeah. It's kind of how it was. Um, the The British, who allied themselves with Zanzibar, endorsed Hamoud bin Mohammed as the new leader of Zanzibar instead of Khalid, but Khalid didn't care. So British diplomat Basil Cave warned Khalid not to upset the British. But Khalid ignored him because obviously his tiny island was more than capable of toppling, toppling like a world superpower, arguably the most powerful nation in the world at that point. So Khalid gathered 2,800 men and outfitted them with rifles, muskets, machine guns, a Gatling gun, a bronze cannon, and two field guns. And he aimed all of them at the British ships that had gathered in the harbor. And then, you know, obviously the British ships all had their guns pointed back at Zanzibar. So it's like, who has the biggest dick competition going on? And the British had, you know, only had about 1,100 men. So they were vastly outnumbered. But they called in an extra gunboat, so they had way more firepower. Uh, Later that day, Hamad was buried, and Khalid uh, officially declared himself the new sultan. Like, that's how quickly this escalated, which is pretty impressive for 1896. Uh, Basil Cave and the rest of the British refused to recognize Khalid as the leader, and then Cave telegraphed a message back to Britain requesting permission to fire on the palace if they were unable to reach a peaceful agreement regarding the proper transition of power. The next day, two more British guns, gunships arrived in the harbor, and they also uh, sent a response back to Cave's telegraph, allowing uh, the British also responded to Cave's telegraph and telling him that he could use whatever resources were available to him to remove Khalid from power. After some more failed negotiations, Rear Admiral Harry Rawson, who had arrived on one of the gunships that morning, told Khalid to leave by morning or, or else. Uh, British citizens living on the island were then evacuated, and British forces waited for Khalid to step down. The next morning, uh, right before the deadline, Khalid sent a messenger to Basil Cave requesting a meeting. The British agreed to the meeting on the sole condition that Khalid would agree to their ultimatum. Khalid responded to that by telling the British they didn't have the balls to fire on his place. I mean, you know, he probably said it a little bit more diplomatically than that, but that was the gist of what he said. And about 30 minutes later, a barrage of cannon fire erupted from the British gunships and began raining down on the palace at Zanzibar. Uh, Khalid's palace, which was mostly made of wood and fortified with rubber and bales of hay because, you know, Africa, uh, quickly went up in flames. Meanwhile, British soldiers stormed the island and started engaging with Zanzibari forces. After 38 minutes of nonstop fire from the gunships, the British had full control of the island. Hamoud bin Mohammed, the British endorsement for Sultan, was then put into power. Uh, Khalid, who ran away shortly after the first shell hit his palace, escaped to German East Africa, where the Germans refused to extradite him back to the British territories. However, Khalid was then captured by the British during the East African campaign during World War I about 20 years later, uh, maybe a little bit more. Uh, He was then exiled for a time to Seychelles and St. Helena, the two kind of penal colony islands uh, out really in the middle of nowhere. Um, But then he was returned to Mombasa, Kenya, where he lived until his death in 1927. And what's interesting about this is the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which is what this came to be called, lasted all of 38 minutes. And it's considered the shortest recorded war in history. Meanwhile, uh, the 335 years war is still going on. Uh, staying in Africa, though, um, Okomfo Anokye, the high priest of the Ashanti people in Western Africa uh, in the late 1800s, uh, started to do, you know decided to do a little dance and caused a magical golden stool to descend from the sky and land in the lap of Osei Tutu, the first Asante king. And from that point, the golden stool was revered among the Ashanti tribe and was believed to house the spirit of the entire Ashanti nation, including those living, dead, and unborn. Well, when the British came rolling through in the 1800s, King Primpe I chose to be deported rather than lose the war and the throne to the British. In 1900, Sir Frederick Hodgson. Uh, Hog, hodgson hodgson there it is uh <laughs> who had been appointed uh, the governor of the gold coast region which was kind of the entire uh, region that was claimed by the british that later pretty much just became the nation of ghana um he arrived and demanded reparations for the war between the two nations which that's that's really a dick move probably um hodgson also claimed that the golden stool now belonged to the queen uh the queen of england Uh, He then demanded that the Ashantis bring him the stool so that he could sit on it, which, look, if there was ever one thing that you didn't do to the Ashantis, it was sit on their sacred stool. And once Hodgson's speech was over, the Ashantis hid the stool, and Ya Asantawa, the queen mother of the uh, Ijishu Asante, it's real confusing, uh, she gathered a small army to attack the British and bring Primpe back from exile. As Captain Cecil Armitage and his men searched for the stool, Asantawa's force attacked the British, forcing them back to their base in Kumasi. Uh, Knowing they didn't really have the firepower to compete with the British, the Ashanti uh, actually spent the next few weeks cutting telegraph wires and blocking supply lines. And just kind of, you know, this real guerrilla warfare that just baffled, you know, proper British white people. Uh, A rescue party arrived two months later and attempted to get the rest of the surviving British out who either, you know, who hadn't starved or died of disease thanks to the Ashanti strategy. And in response, 12,000 Ashanti warriors chased the rescue party to the coastal village of Accra, where another 1,000 British forces were stationed under the leadership of Major James Wilcox. Uh, But even with the extra firepower, which is crazy, the British still suffered heavy losses because they just didn't understand unconventional guerrilla warfare. You know, it's like, you know, these British, you know, it's all about marching and formations and not just going all willy nilly through the jungle and, you know, jumping out and attacking people. Finally, however, on July 14th, 1900... British forces regained control of Kumasi with the help of Nigerian forces. Wilcox and his men then went on to destroy several Ashanti villages before the remaining Ashanti just stood down and surrendered. Um, although the Ashanti lost 2000 soldiers and had their land annexed to the British empire, uh, the Ashanti still claimed victory in the war because the British never got to sit on the golden stool. And that's really, I think what was most important to them. Um, so even though the war of the golden stool was done, uh the 335 years war is still going on um the last war here uh is the emu war uh this took place in australia and i mean like look if there was ever a place that where god just tried really hard to dissuade people from living australia would absolutely be that place Like, if getting lost in the outback and dying from the intense heat wasn't enough of a warning that, like, you shouldn't live there, there's also extremely venomous snakes, spiders like the size of your head, crocodiles who attack anything that moves, jellyfish that kill with just a single tickle of their tentacle, and, like, so much more stuff. And yet, because humans are just really stubborn, they went to Australia anyway. Well, after World War I, many Australian war veterans, along with an influx of British veterans, took up wheat farming in Western Australia under the promise that the country would subsidize them for their work. Well, when the government failed to follow through thanks to the Great Depression in 1929, the farmers just refused to harvest the crops. And to make things worse, by 1932, approximately 20,000 emus had arrived to take advantage of the cultivated land and abundant water supplies that had originally been intended for the farmers' livestock. Uh, the emus wasted no time eating all of the wheat crops and tearing holes in the fences, which allowed rabbits in to cause even more problems, you know? And so look, I mean, you probably know what an emu is. It's that gross looking dinosaur bird that doesn't really fly. just got that long black neck and then the bushy, you know, gray feathered body and just, uh, just looks angry all the time. Yeah. Like 20,000 of those just prancing all over the farm, farm, you know, countryside. Uh, a group of farmers ultimately went to meet with Sir George Pierce, Australia's Minister of Defense. The farmers actually requested machine guns to use as aids against the emus, uh, figuring the guns had worked so well during the war against people that a bunch of flightless demon birds were surely no match for guns as well. Um, Pierce agreed to help the farmers and sent a small military force into Western Australia. The force, led by Major GPW Meredith and armed with 10,000 rounds of ammunition, arrived in Western Australia in October of 1932. But just as the operation was set to begin, a massive rainstorm swept through the area and scattered the emus across the vast outback. By November, the rain had cleared and the operation finally began. On November 2nd, a flock of 50 emus were spotted near the town of Campion. Um, the military began firing on their birds, but they were so far out of the gun's range that they couldn't get hit. Uh, when locals attempted to run at the emus to flock them back together, it just made them scatter even more. Two days later, Major Meredith uh, planned an ambush near a dam where over a thousand emus had set up camp. Unfortunately for the Australian Army, though, their gun jammed after only 12 confirmed kills. The rest of them got away. Meredith, who at this point after the failed ambush at the dam was beyond frustrated at this point, he decided to mount one of the machine guns to the back of a truck and decided to conduct drive-bys down any dirt road where the emus decided to hang out. But since no dirt road in Australia has ever been a smooth ride, the gunner wasn't able to fire anything in a straight line. And so Meredith's new assault plan just ended up being a wasteful spray of bullets into the outback. By November 8th, so we're six days into this, you know, quote unquote war against emus, uh, the Australian army had used up a quarter of its ammunition and had only managed to kill about 50 birds. Uh, And thanks to the negative media coverage, Major Meredith then withdrew his troops. But five days later, thanks to outcry from the farmers, Meredith was back in Western Australia. Uh, This time, he figured out how to counter the emus guerrilla tactics and began to consistently mow them down with his arsenal of machine guns. Um, In all, Meredith's army killed approximately 3,500 emus over the course of the month. And, you know, even though there were 20,000, you know, it's not really much of a dent. Um, You know, the problem ultimately resolved. Um, before we end today's story, we finish up uh, fast forwarding to 1986, um, back on the Isles of Skilly in Britain, Roy Duncan, chairman of the Isles of Skilly Council, wrote a letter to the Dutch embassy in London to dispose of this weird myth that he had uncovered about the British and Dutch being at war for the last 335 years. Uh, when the Dutch embassy responded by saying that the two countries were, in fact, still technically at war, uh, Duncan invited Dutch Ambassador Junkier Rein Heedekooper Cooper to the island to sign a peace treaty Uh, The Dutch ambassador complied and the peace treaty uh, was signed. There were zero casualties and zero shots fired in the longest war ever, uh, the three hundred and thirty five years war. There we go. Uh, A lot of dumb things that people have fought over. And, you know, whatever. It's war. We'll fight about more dumb things. God knows, go look at Twitter. People are fighting over dumb stuff constantly. So let's see what we learned today. <laughs> What did we learn? Number one, if you're going up against a tribe of Maori and they keep chopping down your flagpole, they probably don't really care about whatever you're trying to do. Just don't don't erect your flag. You know, it's not that hard. Um, number two, the Kettle War was a thing because someone fired a single shot and hit a kettle, which terrified the Belgians so much that they retreated. And then no shots, no other shots were fired. No one ever died. Uh, And number three, at 38 minutes long, the Anglo Zanzibar War is the shortest recorded war in history. Next week on Our Weird World, it's a very special episode. You guys. It's the one-year anniversary of this dumb little show. Like, I can't believe we I kept this up. There's no we. I did this because, I mean, look, I appreciate, like, all two of you who listen on a consistent basis. Um, anyway, we'll jump more into that next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about heroic animals. It's going to be silly, so a good way to wrap up the first official year Of this podcast so thank you all for listening tell all your friends like it's it's been a show for a full year there's a ton of episodes to go back and binge and catch up so like it's a legitimate show so tell all your friends about it let's have like four listeners by the end of the second year and keep it weird Hey, wait, um, hey, hey, how's it going? Uh, before you leave, uh, I totally can't believe I forgot to mention this, but, um, well, actually I can because I'm really bad at promoting myself, but uh, if you weren't aware I recently published uh, another book, I think I'm up to like 18, 17, 18 at this point, but it is uh, the fifth version uh, of my 100 stories, The Lesser Known History of Humanity. Uh, And if you're unfamiliar with the series, um, it's where I write a book that contains 100 stories, usually about lesser known events from history, uh, strange people, strange events, whatever. Uh, Most of, if not all, well, no, all of the stories that I tell on this podcast uh, come from those books. And, um, you know, some of the, some of the stories, uh, I think we've covered, uh, so far, but, uh, most of them have not, uh, come about yet on this show. And so if you're the reading type, if you like words, uh, you know, really, honestly, if you just need something to read while you're pooping, um, and you're not one of those people who just sits on your phone all the time, um, which is weird, but, uh, you know, Think about picking up uh, this book or, or some of these books. Other uh, great conversation starters give you something nice to talk about at parties or whatever. Uh, but yeah, 100 Stories, The Lesser Known History of Humanity, Part 5 uh, is available now. Um, you can get it at Amazon, it's on barnesandnoble.com, or you can go to johnhensonwrites.com and find it there. Appreciate it. Uh, tell your friends about that too. You know, Maybe people who don't understand how podcasts work, maybe they still like books. I don't know. No one really reads anymore. I don't know why. I did the books, but whatever. It's just the strange decisions I make with my life. So yeah, uh, get the book, but thanks for checking it out either way. All right. See you.